0: My name's Peter Bell. I'm founder and CTO at CTO Connection, a community where senior engineering leaders can share problems and get answers. Check us out at ctoconnection.com. Today I'll be chatting with Lee Edwards. Lee's a partner at Root Ventures and was previously CTO and VP of Engineering at Teespring and an engineering manager at Groupon before that. We'll be discussing how to think about picking the right tech startup. First I want to take a moment to thank our partners. AWS is our global partner for 2021. Code Climate, Carrot, and LaunchDarkly are our sustaining sponsors. And without all of them, we couldn't afford to create these resources for the community. So thanks so much. Whether you're thinking of founding, joining, or investing in an early-stage tech company, Lee Edwards has some advice, from effective due diligence on early-stage companies to some interesting focus areas for deep tech startups. Let's see what he's got to share. Hi, Lee. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: So, uh, first question. You can code. You know how to manage development teams. You've been a CTO or VP of engineering. Why did you decide to become a venture (laughs) capitalist?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same reason I ended up as a software developer. Um, I mean, I've been coding kind of my whole life, but when I went to college, I did... um, a little bit of everything in engineering. I did the systems engineering degree and I ended up as a mechanical design engineer at iRobot. And I was like sort of okay at that, like not really that good, honestly. Um, and uh, I was just doing a lot of, I kind of rediscovered programming and was doing Ruby on Rails for fun. I was building some side projects. And then I just realized one day that I liked my side projects more than I liked my full-time job. Um, nothing against iRobot, I think I just wasn't very good. Um, at mechanical design. Um, and the same thing ended up happening with VC, where um, I was started investing in a couple friends' companies, um, was doing some angel investing. I was uh, in Bloomberg Beta Scout program. And originally the idea was, okay, well, when my friends come along and start a company, I might as well support them, write a small check, and then have a reason to help them out. Um, and eventually it became... Oh, I'm gonna. I'm looking for stuff like I'm, you know, meeting with a couple founders a day. I'm like, you know, getting lunch with uh, with founders uh, during work. So I just realized, you know, if I wanted to get good at it, I would need to do it full time and and spend um, spend a year angel investing full time before joining Root.
0: Nice. So as a VC, your job is to try to pick winning startups. And as engineering leaders, we often have to do the same thing if we're looking to work in an early stage startup. For sure. um, now, obviously, the information asymmetry is different. Uh, we don't get quite the same access to the books as you might if you're <laughs> you know, go over, going to write a decent check. Uh, but if you were going to go join a seed or pre-seed stage startup as a CTO now, let's say you decide, OK, done with investing. I'm going to be a CTO. I want to do it at someone else's startup. What would be some of the things you would look at in a in a startup to try to reduce the risk of joining a dad?
1: Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really astute observation. I, I think when you join an early startup, um, you're taking the pay cut and you're getting the equity, so you really should view it as an investment. Um, you know, I think you you uh, there's maybe some exceptions, maybe if you're younger and trying to get experience, but for the most part, I think um, you should join a startup because you think the equity is going to be worth something. Um, So, yeah, I think there's a few things that are common. I think, um, you know, is this the kind of CEO I'd want to work for? And part of that's going to come down to style. Um, Part of that's going to come down to, you know, are they up for the job? Um, If the startup's going to grow, they're going to probably be the CEO from, you know, two people all the way through like maybe IPO or acquisition. Um, So the kind of person that can grow and scale in that environment. Um, Yeah, I I think there's a lot of commonalities, like at least in terms of what I look for, I think. Um, humble leadership can be important, um, and at the same time, uh, it's a, it's an interesting balance because I think humble leadership is important for your team, but also the ability to kind of ignore your critics and um, uh, you know decide decide what feedback's useful and, and who's dragging you down and push forward anyway um, is the flip side of that coin. Um, so I think that's a big thing in terms of the business, right? I think it's sort of you know if the company's venture backed. It's going to need to stay on that train if it's already raised venture capital or if it plans to. And so, is this a billion-dollar business in the future? Is kind of the fundamental question. Um, so yeah, is this like a large market? Is this you know sort of if we if we keep it scoped to DevTools, I think of there being like companies like GitHub where every engineer is going to use it and they only pay seven dollars a month. But it's literally everyone. It's a huge business. Um, Stack Overflow is kind of similar, um, except you know different revenue model. Um, and then compare that to maybe like a, um, say like a Unity or Unreal Engine, where it's a much, much smaller group of developers, but um, they're paying a huge amount of money because you know, these are per seat licenses. Um, so I think kind of trying to do that napkin math, like is, is there even a story here where this is a huge company?
0: So that makes sense. So firstly, there's got to be the napkin math. Assuming anybody's going to buy this at all or engage with it, it needs to be a big enough opportunity. How do you figure out If anyone's going to engage with it at all, how do you validate the value proposition, especially like in the pre-seed or like early seed stage where, I mean, with deep tech, you can be most of the way through a seed stage and still not have actually shipped a product. How do you figure out if people are going to buy something that the company hasn't yet even finished building?
1: Yeah, I think um, one thing I do for diligence that I like to lean on is, talk to people that are potential customers. I think a lot of VCs will try to do, can I talk to your customers? And so there's a few problems with that. I think, yeah, one, obviously at the pre-seed or seed, there may not be any customers. (laughs) Um, The other is I think just customer fatigue and annoying the founder's customers is like not really a great use of um, that, you know, that limited resource that the founder has with with the customer. Um, But yeah, I think what I like to do is I'll try to kind of hone the pitch and talk to a potential customer and sort of like do the sales pitch. There's um, someone I'm talking to now actually where I like, uh, it's funny, I was really going back and forth with him on like, developing my, hearing his sales pitch so that mine could kind of match his. And I'm gonna call a bunch of people that are sort of in his customer segment um, and uh, try to figure out if it's interesting. Is, there, is this a problem they have? Is there willingness to pay? Is this something they built internally? Um, so you can kind of do that. I mean, I think also if you're thinking of joining a company and maybe you're the potential customer or someone you know is kind of a potential customer think about that um yeah so again, again using the dev tools analogies like i have friends that joined netlify recently and um it's great right they're like i'm netlify users this is an awesome product i love it um it seems clear to me that there are people that will use this um, i hope they're right they probably
0: are. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a bunch of sense. So, so if that's the, the product side of things, the, the other thing you mentioned was the teams. So what are some of the things you'd look out for or look for in a founding executive team?
1: Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I do think, um, I think thinking about like, what are all the core risks for the company? And is the team sort of, um, do they have kind of the experience here in the, and the skill set to to address all the, the major challenges. Um, so I do think experience is underrated uh, pretty much across the board. Um, we have a lot of, um, we don't have that many founders that are sort of like young straight out of college. Um, we have a lot of founders that are, that have some experience under their belts and some like on the very extreme end, we have a founder that um, was one of the original architects for Windows CE, uh, worked on some of the very first AWS cloud services that were around supporting EC2, um, and he's building, you know, essentially like software supply chain for enterprise devices, um, so he's doing operating systems and DevOps, so it's like very relevant kind of founder, um, founder market fit or founder technology fit. Um, as a rule, we only are investing in companies where there's technical talent on the founding team, and we believe that um, really great engineers can become uh, really great CEOs uh, much more easily than sort of vice versa um and that anything that's sort of technical risk if that's one of the key risks um even if that's just sort of roadmap delivery and hiring a technical team like that really has to be among the founders um i don't think you see a ton of examples there may be a few but i don't think you see a ton of examples of really great um hard tech companies outsourcing all the technology um and so uh yeah so we think that's a really important part of the dna and then when it comes to sort of management style Um, and, and all that, I, you know, I actually, I really do think that, um, aside from being the right thing to do, I think it helps the company's success to have a diverse founding team. Um, part of that is, is recruiting. I mean, I think it's, um, harder and harder to find more and more and better and better talent. And so every, every chip you have stacked in your favor there is helpful. Um, and we see diverse founding teams have much more diverse and bigger, um, hiring pipelines. Um, just see that over and over again. Um, so yeah, I, I do weight that pretty heavily. Um, I think um, just gelling with them. I mean, honestly, there's just, there's so many investors out there and we're all offering the same product. We're all offering cash for equity. That's our product. It's extremely commoditized. And um, uh, But everyone's got their own styles. And so when I talk to a founder and I feel like, wow, I wanna work with this person, or even like, I think one bar we try to use is like, would I work for this person? Um, I have a number of portfolio companies where if RLPs came back tomorrow and said, uh, "We're done. We don't want to invest in you anymore. Uh, you know, you're out of a job." Um, there's a f- there's a few companies I work with where I, I would I would li- like I'm not even kidding. I would literally just go work there. I would apply because um, they're early. I think they're huge businesses, and I love working with the founders. Um,
0: so I think idea. It's a really important bar. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing you said, it's a bit of a tangent, but I'd love to dig into it, is this idea of great engineers. It's a little easier for a great engineer to become a great CEO than, or maybe the other way around. Well, certainly I'll buy that, but it's actually been fascinating to me to see people who've got a strong engineering, engineering leadership background, moving in to founder positions, to head of marketing positions, to areas you wouldn't expect. And it seems like there's something about that, that Mm -hmm. ability to like systemize and build processes that adds value. I mean, why do you think, the, the right kind of engineer or engineering leader could make a good CEO?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, well, a lot of times for the stuff that we're looking at um, and that I'm looking at in particular um, in like the developer tool space, uh, the customer is an engineer. And so pretty much across the board, if you're running um, like a SaaS business, uh, it's, people will always say like the CEO should be the first salesperson. Because um, you don't have a sales playbook, right? You don't have sort of a repeatable sales process yet and like a well-known product and product spec sheet and all that. So the most important thing you're doing when you're looking for product market fit is talk to these customers that have this problem, show them what you've got, gather the feedback, put, figure out is that something we want to put in the product roadmap or is this just not the right customer? And so we should go find another customer like that there's a strategic decision-making process there and there's a tight feedback loop between customer feedback and product development. So the CEO is really the best position, or let's say like amongst the founders is really in the best position to make that decision. Um, and so then you add on top of that, if the, if the CEO has, um, roots in, in engineering, they've been the customer, they know the customers, um, that's yeah, hugely beneficial. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think we've seen this over and over again. I mean, you look at the top, look at the top companies in technology, the richest man in the world today is an engineer, um, uh, founder CEO of all the top tech companies, um, all, all engineers. Um, so I don't, yeah, I, I mean, you, you, you can't really pattern match to sort of the top five necessarily, but I would say there's pretty strong evidence that, um, you know, not having an MBA and having a BS in engineering does not necessarily mean you'll top out as a leader.
0: <laughs> if
1: anything, great. the evidence the other way.
0: <laughs> so to, to, to kind of wrap on the, the thinking about if you're a CTO and you're looking to, to get a role, maybe a pre-seed or seed stage company, anything else, any other advice you would share with somebody going through that process or thinking of going through that process now?
1: Yeah, I, I think looking at some looking at some macro trends could be helpful. Um, so it um, might be worth thinking about, you know, what's going to be big in the future, what's going to be important in the future. Um, and if I were casting like a really broad, wide net, um, you know, I might even think about things in like biotech. Um, <laughs> and actually, I would say it's, it's important that it also aligns with your interests, right? Um, so if you're the kind of person who's maybe curious about that and willing to learn that area, that's it's not an area I invest, invest in, but I think it's, it's really exciting. Um, and there's a lot of other things like that. Um, but specifically in the areas that we look at, um, I'm interested in kind of um, the trends in, in uh, accessibility of AI. Um, so more and more people can do uh, more with very simple models. Um, what's that going to kind of do to the world? Um, the availability of cloud compute. I mean, it, it, depending on how strategic you want to get about this, you might think about like the trends in, in solar energy getting cheaper and cheaper. There's like a Moore's law for solar energy price. And so what's that going to do to the world and how can you get on that train? Um, like one implication might be the cloud compute just goes, cloud compute costs are just driven by energy. And so um if solar gets cheaper and cheaper, cloud compute is lower and lower. That's another trend that supports sort of more AI, more ML. Maybe there are certain areas of AI that are more accessible now, um, like reinforcement learning, uh, which is maybe prohibitively expensive for a lot of things like GPT-3 um, and like the OpenAI 5 model. What happens when that becomes as cheap to do as like a three layer deep neural net on a gigabyte of data, um, which means not not free, but, you know, cheaper. Um, so, yeah, I, and I think um, I, I, would, I would maybe just sort of do that thought experiment and then make sure that it aligns with something that you actually want to do. Um, if you're not going to be excited about working in e-commerce for 10 years, then don't join an e-commerce company. If you're not going to be excited um, working on like back-end architecture for like a DevOps product, then don't do that. Um, and the people, which is just a personal a personal fit uh, choice, you know, if you're the CTO, you should really be working really well with the CEO, depending on the stage of the company, um, something I think about a lot. I I think CTOs rarely think about, um, you know, will I fit well with um, the chief people officer and the CFO and the COO, there is a lot of other people um, that are going to be on that board if you're sort of a growth stage company or later, that's when you're joining. Um, At Teespring, my two best friends were the chief people officer and um, the CFO. And I spent a ton of, I had to spend a ton of time with them. We had a big team. Um, we were hiring like crazy. And so, um, yeah, being able to kind of, uh, cross that divide and speak a lot of languages. And I learned a ton. Um, I'm like constantly using learnings that I got from the CFO. Um, not necessarily about finance even.
0: Absolutely. So uh, you you mentioned a few areas. I think I'm I'm going to stick within the, the the deep tech programming. You know, ML. Uh, programming languages, Mm -hmm. dev tools, stuff like that space. One of the things is interesting, because you mentioned the biotech, and it's something I've thought about a number of times. The challenge I find is that it's just a deep stack. It's like you kind of have to go back to inorganic Mm -hmm. and organic chemistry and then physiology. And it just feels to me like such a deep stack. It's very hard to make a mid-career transition to it, Uh, at least with computers (laughs) like... I know like holes and electrons and like the the basic physics underlying semiconductors and radio communications and satcom. So I feel like I have most of the way up that stack up to like compilers and interpreters and programming languages and you know websites. So it, it feels like it's a little mm-hmm. easier to stay in that lane. But you you, you mentioned some some trends in that space. Uh, so so one thing you definitely you talked about was was ML. So when you think about that what do you think as you said the reducing cost of compute power and things like that are, are fundamentally going to change and my guess is that improvements in the ability to work with sparse data sets and things like that will also drive down the cost of some of these models what are some of the things that you you think are interesting areas within the the ml field that that you're seeing some interesting startups mm-hmm. around
1: yeah i've been i've been really interested in this area of um of generative models so there's there's a there's a couple companies out there. There's, there's probably more than a couple. Um, but, uh, Runway ML, uh, and Rosebud are both like really interesting companies right now that are, that are taking similar technology. To, you've probably seen deep fake, right? And like deep fake is so interesting because we're talking about what happens if, um, somebody makes a deep fake of Joe Biden and then declares war on, um, you know, uh, Texas. whoever, um, yeah, on Texas. Right. Um, and, uh, so, and we're talking about, like, you know, what would we do? Because these, these deep fakes are, like, so realistic. Um, but that technology is really interesting. Could it be used in entertainment um, for games or for um, or maybe even for, like, marketing and advertising? Um, uh, we've seen, like, completely digital influencers. So there, there's a lot that's interesting there if you think about the fact that just making video, like, as you know, like making video is hard. You should, you need to, to make it high quality. You need to like know things about video and audio. You need to put the time into it. You need to have like the right tools. It's not, and, and transfer that to like making assets for games or for making movies. We live in a world where a single engineer, if they're willing to put in the time and learn, like they can make a website, they can make a mobile app. Those can even be big. They can make, I mean, you could be Patrick McKenzie and make a lot of money. Just as a solo person making some software, you could also be a venture-backed startup founder and have a team of four or a team of eight that makes Clubhouse and, and get a billion-dollar valuation. But I don't think you can really do that right now with games and movies. Um, there's some exceptions, obviously. I mean, you know, Blair Witch Project was like two people, but um, uh, but and with games, there's like a few indie games. But can you you generally look at these big blockbusters and they've just got enormous teams and um, especially for games, I'm wondering about. Can you teach yourself a little bit about Unity, a little bit about Unreal, and then not have to have three different people that do animations, modeling, and textures, um, you know, and, and design? Um, I think creating assets in that area is really interesting. And I, I, I really rabbit holed on like one particular thing, but but it, it kind of that's kind of the way I think about these things. Is like, um, I even mean, look like look at some of the cutting edge algorithms right now, and a lot of them are reinforcement learning based. Um, and some of them are like generative adversarial network based, um, and uh, they're so early. What 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 like real valuable problems, big big industries that can be attached to? <laughs> okay, um, yeah, I, I think there's a few areas where the technology is just lying on the ground, where like NLP and computer vision are just like sort of there for people to use um, a lot of times off the shelf um, models, maybe. Uh, maybe trained with some of your own data, uh, and maybe even not, are good enough to do really interesting things. And and when you look at some large industries like logistics and shipping or mining, um, and a lot of these companies, they've got an enormous amount of money. They're actually more creative than most people give them credit for, but they don't have a lot of software engineers. Um, And uh, there are linear regressions that can improve our consumption of, uh, you know, reduce our consumption of oil and gas, increase the efficiency of the energy system with linear regressions, not to mention computer vision um, or like, you know, neural networks. Um, So, yeah, I I tend to view that stuff as just laying on the ground. These are companies that maybe are just adopting the web. They're kind of um, a generation behind, mainly because Silicon Valley doesn't think about them. Um, So, you know, something we try to do is stop navel gazing. And try to understand like, you know, what are the big players in the economy and how can we bring tech to them.
0: Nice. Well, it's interesting. The GANS thing you mentioned, I saw just the other day, I think it was Unreal, actually have launched something where you can basically just set a few configuration settings and get a photorealistic totally. character generated, mm-hmm. presumably using a, a GANS under the hood.
1: Totally. That so... demo is mind blowing. It's <laughs> crazy. <laughs>
0: And what about, I mean, the other big area I see a lot of traction and interest in in the AI or ML space in general is NLP, especially when people are talking about things like GPT-3 and, hey, it can write all the code for you. I don't (laughs) think it's going to replace at least my development team just yet, but what what do you think some of the interesting (laughs) opportunities are with NLP? Yeah,
1: it's funny. I mean, I may have a blind spot in that area because I I think a lot of times... um, it's funny. I was just—I was actually just talking to some winemakers about this, and we were talking about sort of software and decentralization of wine reviews. And no, nobody ever wants to believe that technology is going to disrupt their own industry, um, and um, and it never fully disrupts it, right? I, I don't know. Maybe I don't want to rabbit hole on this one particular thing, but like, I think in the wine industry, like, um, we're not really going to replace like human sommeliers. People want the human connection. They want the story, and actually, they kind of want to feel like. Waited on. That's like, that's kind of, you want to go to a restaurant and forget about it. You don't want to think about it. The food's made for you. The wine pairing's made for you. Maybe you have a little bit of input. Um, and so that part's not going away, but certain parts of the industry may be disrupted. So it's funny because talking to them and then I'm realizing like the ways that I think about Angel List and Republic and things like that. I'm like, well, you can't decentralize my industry. Like, you know, I have a unique set of skills and expertise um, that can't really be taken over by wisdom of the crowds. And I'm like, wait, I, I guess maybe I'm just falling prey to this um, cognitive bias. And so I kind of might have the same cognitive bias for software engineering. But I tend to think that um, there's always going to be sort of a cutting edge of software engineering that maybe not even a cutting edge. I think there's always going to be like a piece of software engineering that um, is going to be sort of bespoke. And um, but and there's always going to be this layer that's sort of free. Like we don't really need to think about um, a lot of lower level things that we used to. And that floor just kind of keeps raising, I think, like the amount of stuff that you get for free or for cheap in terms of time and effort um, is just increasing and rising constantly. But there's always going to be people that are building the stuff that's not there yet, Um, I think.
0: (laughs) Well, I think uh, it's, also, and it's, a, it's a double-edged sword because one of the things that I see, like especially I was working at a boot camp, and one of the challenges is the good news is you get all this stuff for free. The bad news is you used to be able to, like, if you wanted to build a website, all you had to do was buy a book on Perl and then upload yeah. it to a web server. And now you need to understand Kubernetes, Docker, you've got to get Git, GitHub. You've got to be comfortable with th- this whole deep stack of tools. And, and I think increasingly so as we move to like a server, and low code world where you have just more and more APIs you need to engage with and tooling and, and and I feel like it's actually becoming easier to be productive as a software engineer but harder to actually start out and become one.
1: yeah that might be true and I think a lot of that stuff is really oriented towards um, teams and like maintainability. And so the the hello world is maybe not helpful. I actually, I was building a project recently. We're building sort of a data room for for our LPs, the investors in our fund, and um, we want to make it like a command line interface. So we make it like kind of on brand, but make it like very easy. These are non technical people, so it'll just have help, and they can just type a thing. And so I started to build this in React, and I was like, what am I doing? Like this is an HTML page that includes a single JavaScript file, like. I and no, and I'm going to write this code, you know, over a weekend and never touch it again. So I actually just I, I like I, my first two commits in the repo are using react and then I have a third commit that's like remove react. <laughs> um,
0: so, um, so, yeah, going back to developer, so developer tools was something you mentioned a couple of times. What do you think are some of the interesting trends we're going to see around uh, like DevOps and, and developer tools over the next few years?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot that's interesting, and and I, I definitely don't have perfect vision on this, or or you know I would be a Dev Tools founder rather than a Dev Tools VC, but um, I, I sort of just have to recognize it when I see it. But um, I, I would say like broadly, I'm I'm really really interested in the emerging field of developer experience, like sort of DX, um, and uh, how that can be applied to more things. I think I think there's a lot of like as you're kind of mentioning, there's a lot of really powerful tools out there like Kubernetes. Um, and, and I, think the, I think the list here is endless. Um, you know, even even things like microservices and serverless and, um, uh, 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 and, and like, all the ML tools, this stuff um, can always be more accessible. Uh, and I think places like Heroku um, and the folks coming out of Heroku, uh, I, I, I love and respect that kind of, they've sort of created, like, a, a DX discipline. Um, And how do we make a command line tool that works really well? So I think almost anything that's sort of, let's bring this to the average um, product engineer and give them sort of superpowers. uh, I think a lot of times people don't, you don't think about the fact that, I mean like the average software engineer sort of has average experience, (laughs) like by definition. And so, um, yeah, a lot of the stuff that more senior engineers regard as easy isn't. Um, So I think if you start there, and just kind of think about the huge range of things that are out there a lot of our investments kind of look like this um, agent-based modeling and simulation uh, real-time streaming data infrastructure uh robust development environments that work really well um, that basically describes um hash uh Maroxa and octeto in our portfolio um esper does this for basically uh de- deployed enterprise devices um And, uh, yeah, I I think that's one huge area. I think another thing to think about is, like, the software supply chain. So I've been a huge fan of Jeff Lawson's book, Ask Your Developer. Um, I feel like I just keep talking about this everywhere I go. And I'm giving him free press, and I've never met him. But um, without going too deeply into it. He sort of talks about the fact that like in the nineties, you um, would hire a bunch of develop, you need a CMS, like, you know, you're a newspaper or something. You need a CMS to hire a bunch of developers, have like a 12 to 18 month long project, um, write the thing in PHP, like it, it might fail. Um, and then you have this very bespoke thing. And then you can't really sort of like pivot as new things come around. And then software 2.0 was like, Hey, actually you can just buy Salesforce. It's like good enough. Um, and, or you could buy WordPress.com. And it's very broad and general. Um, but probably meets your needs. And then now we're in a world where it's actually easy enough to kind of buy software that we can almost go back to that first model, except that it takes you, you know, one to three months to build the thing. And part of that is we have this software supply chain. It's kind of analogous to in the hardware world. When you build a car, you have like a tiered supply chain. Um, so, uh, and also like an aerospace, right? Like Boeing doesn't make their own engines. They buy them from Rolls-Royce um, and other places. Um, so yeah, like we don't have to do payment processing. We buy Stripe. We don't, handle texting and supporting a hundred different carriers we just use twilio so i think building out the components to the software supply chain is another really interesting thing um and uh certainly see that with like Auth the off zero and then recently there was kind of a, a leaked rumor about stitch um raising money at i think a 200 200 million dollar post money valuation um and uh yeah i think thinking about that like what's the big repeatable stuff that everyone's doing, everyone's building in house. They don't want to, um, or what's like a new superpower that um, you didn't really have before, um, mm-hmm. and because you didn't want to invest the time in building it, and now you now you don't have to.
0: That's amazingly lots of really good advice there. And then I, I just think the last piece for me, last question is: if you were talking to a friend who was thinking of starting, of founding a deep tech company, is there any advice that you would share with them?
1: Yeah, I mean. Um, I definitely think yeah this applies even more so to the person that's joining the startup is this something you like really want to work on for 10 years i think the best um it's not always true i mean we, we we do sometimes talk to founders that are like hey i want to start something i'm not sure what we help workshop that with them but usually they're kind of coming in with um a general idea so we we work with a company called serve automation and they came out of spacex they're like amazing at building machines that do things And they're like, well, we really wanna be in food tech. I have like a food background. I think there's a lot of opportunity from a macroeconomic perspective, um, like rising cost of labor um, and uh, uh, just sort of like demand for lower cost food, um, just looking at sort of uh, the amount of wallet share that people are spending on food and the kind of food they're doing. Like when you're eating McDonald's, it's not really healthy for you. It's kind of like exacerbating a health crisis in this country. So all those basically looking at that macro trend and they're like, well, what's the right food to build? Um, So we kind of worked with them and we did some like market analysis and talked to them about, um, uh, you know, all the various uh, segments um, in the food industry and and kind of came up with one. So um, and they're not like exactly public yet, but um, I think I can at least say as much as I just did. Um, But um, so I think that's like one way to think about it. But a lot of times there's also the founder that's just like, I built this, I can't stop thinking about it, or I've been doing this open source project. It's like really blowing up. I think um, there might be, it might be that my my users are going to be willing to pay for a hosted version of this or with some, you know, open core type model. Um, So I'd love to figure out how to make this a business and do it full time and make it huge. Um, So I think, yeah, sort of aligning to something that you're passionate about, aligning to um, what's Uh, what are some like secular trends or macro trends? Uh, And then also, you know, if you're seeking venture funding, you should definitely make sure it's kind of a venture fundable type business. There's a lot of like great businesses that are not. um, And uh, I know a lot less about funding those, but if you're going for the venture funding idea, uh, you know, it's kind of, can this be a billion dollar company? Are there sort of milestones along the way that would be sort of proof points for um, subsequent fundraising? and then, sort of targeting investors that are well-aligned. Hopefully, understand your domain, uh, maybe understand your technology, um, and also like how to go to market and grow the business.
0: Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. This is great. This is great.